1: Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the Conservative Party's latest efforts to reinvent itself and the latest Brexit eruptions this week. I'm delighted to be joined by our editorial director, Robert Shrimsley, political editor, George Parker, deputy comment editor, Miranda Green, plus Henry Newman from the Open Europe Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Tory modernisation is back on the agenda. After last year's snap general election, where Jeremy Corbyn came very close to seizing power, the party has realised it needs to do something new, a new sheen, some new ideas. It's finally getting around to doing something about it. A bunch of new campaign groups have been popping up over the last couple of weeks to put forward new policies and tactics for fighting Labour with the aim of winning the next general election. There's now a new group for every ideological camp, but have they got any chance of beating Corbyn's labour? And are they suffering from a narcissism of small differences? Miranda Green. So the Conservative Party is clearly not in a great way at the moment, completely consumed by Brexit, which is becoming more of a hash as every week goes by. No time or capacity to talk about anything domestic, really. Plus, led by Theresa May, who, at best, is doing a custodian of the government, not really actively doing anything. So although they remain ahead in the post, it's hard to see how they really get out of this funk, not least until after Brexit day.
2: Well, that's true. But actually, although you've said there is no time and energy to have a sort of development in the government, brought in the government actually, in wider conservative circles, as you have pointed out, there's quite a lot of activity and a lot of it's happened this week. It's interesting to me to see that the Conservative Party has realised that since the coalition and its rather brilliant strategy of having the Lib Dems in government as a gateway drug to voting Conservatives, as they famously said at the time, they've slightly abandoned the project of trying to win the rest of us over. It's become a narrow party again. And this is, of course, particularly to do with Brexit. But beyond the Brexit Project, they've realised they need to broaden their appeal. Now, I think that this is sort of it has some huge challenges, but it's a very important thing for them to at least realise. So, I'm quite intrigued, particularly by the role of Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, in trying to reawaken the party as something that might appeal to younger voters and to those of us who are not dyed in the wool. So I think it's worth keeping an eye on this stuff. But I think there's a huge problem with voters' self-image. Lots of people, whether they actually think Tory proposals are more sensible than Labour proposals or not, are kind of repelled by the Conservative Party being, as Theresa May herself so, famously said all those years ago, the nasty party and, of course, things like Windrush haven't helped that.
1: It's Robert Shrimsley, this was where the Conservative Party essentially found itself in 2005. It ran a general election campaign that was quite dog-whistling on several or social issues. It wasn't making any progress against Tony Blair's Labour Party. David Cameron came along, as well as a new leader in a new image, reconsidered a lot of what the party was fundamentally about. He wanted to stop banging on about Europe. That went well. But he went on a lot of other issues. He did really rethink what the conservatives are about. Do you think this is an attempt to try and go back to that era? Or based on what you see, is there something genuinely new and
3: different happening? I think one of the big differences is that last time in 2005, you had this, you know, renaissance if one wants to call it that, led by the leader of the Conservative Party, David Cameron arrived, symbolised change, said we're going to change, and he was driving a lot of this. Whereas now, you'll have these groups being set up almost in spite of the party leader, and often associated with people who are thinking about becoming leader, (laughs) and who are positioning themselves for a leadership contest they assume will happen before the next election. You also have the dynamic of what one might call the more liberal minded Brexiters looking to a future point where they demerge from their more traditional conservative allies and re-ally with the more metropolitan, more city minded, more liberal conservatives. So there's quite a lot of shape shifting going on. You mentioned Ruth Davidson and one thought that occurred to me after the election and with the launch of these groups is if one looks back to the 2015 general election where the Scottish Nationalist Party on a wave of enthusiasm for independence scored this tremendous success virtually wiped everybody else out in Scotland in the parliamentary elections and then in the following year slumped back badly as people thought hang on but you're in government and we remember now that we don't like you as much as that vote might suggest and I think you could potentially see the same thing happening to the Conservatives, they're riding a wave of enthusiasm for Brexit, it's quite hard to see how they can deliver exactly the Brexit that all of their voters want or that those voters are going to thank them when they do and it's quite conceivable that they could slump back rather than drive forward on the back of that.
1: And the other point on that is that we're realistically talking about a general election in 2022. That means the Conservatives will have been in power for 12 years by that point. And that's very hard to win an election because you're wholly responsible for your record. You can't really talk about what Labour did in 2007, in
3: 2022. Quite. I mean, even if you could, it's a very different Labour Party. I think also that it's very hard to think of a third term government that increases its vote in a third election and the Tories haven't got a lot of spare vote to play with. They've got no majority. So I think it's very tricky. The other point I'd mention is that it isn't as clean as it perhaps looked in 2005 because the demographics between both parties, and this is a problem for Labour as well, are shifting in that once upon a time it was important to the Conservatives to appeal to urban, metropolitan, well-to-do, socially liberal people. Now a big part of their pitch is out of the cities and into the smaller towns. They're making significant inroads into the working class vote once you get out of the city. And you're having a sort of break of the parties. Labour becoming more city, Tories becoming more small town. This is a fascinating point, Miranda,
1: about where these electoral coalitions sit, because David Cameron's calculation was essentially we could let some of the more right wing people just go off. And they obviously went off to UKIP and they reached their zenith with four million votes in 2015. But then we would appear, as you said, to more metropolitan Liberal Democrat votes in places like Bristol and Battersea. It's going to be interesting to see whether they can speak to those people again, because I think if they don't, they're not going to get a majority government or even have to think about getting a majority because, as Robert said, they're both pushing towards the ceilings of where they can reach with their current electoral coalitions. Well,
2: that's right. But also, Robert's much more interesting point is about this shift that's going on under the headline figures where partly because of Brexit, you've got an appeal to working class votes from the right again, which is actually potentially quite important now to holding some sort of respectable performance for the Conservatives together next time, apart from even trying to get a win. So you can't now then abandon those people and go back to some sort of Cameron Osborne agenda because you'll then be abandoning those people in just the way that the Corbyn Labour Party has actually abandoned those people. So it's really, really interesting. And actually, this whole question of those who are not served well by the choice of parties on offer is the really interesting question here. And it's also where there is a genuine gap in the market because quite often we have this discussion as if there's a really simple spectrum from left to right with the three big parties, the SNP obviously as well, located somewhere on that spectrum and then voters sort of sort themselves happily from left to right. Of course it isn't like that at all, partly because you've not only got the Brexit position which has exposed a lot of new divisions in the last couple of years, You've also got where people sit on a kind of authoritarian sort of y-axis as well. And that's quite interesting because a lot of people who've been poring over this idea of whether there's room for a new centre party have pointed out, well, actually, there's quite a lot of people who are quite authoritarian, who wouldn't be attracted at all. And that's actually, if you go back to it, I know I sound a bit like a stuck record sometimes on Tony Blair's virtues, but... New Labour was very clever because quite a lot of its stuff was also quite authoritarian on things like crime and sort of social order, you know, CCTV cameras, ASBOs, all of that. It was good for working class voters because they wanted a crackdown. And I think you have to look very carefully about where the gaps in the market really exist rather than where we assume they exist.
3: I mean, I, I think it's really something I was talking to the cabinet minister at the beginning of the week. And he was laying out to me the dream scenario for the Conservatives and making the point, which I agree with, that the next election is absolutely there for the taking by either of the main parties. Both of them have a strategy to get there. But for the Conservatives, that strategy revolves around getting a leader who's good at campaigning, getting people to stop thinking about Brexit, being able to draw a line under Brexit sometime next year, which I think is going to be very, very difficult. And also then reoccupying a bit of that centre ground without becoming all liberal and lovey and doing all the things that their traditional members don't want. And in a sense, one of the frustrations I think they all feel is that if you think back to what Theresa May said when she first got elected leader and what she said when she launched her election offer, it was absolutely spot on, right in the sweet spot of where they needed to be. The problem was she hasn't delivered any of it and she wasn't a very good campaigner. But if they deviate too far from that strategy they may find they've lost both sides. My argument on this is that whoever they choose to succeed, Miss
1: May, I think just to clarify that the Prime Minister says she'll fight the next election, <laughs> nobody in Westminster believes that, not least most of the Conservative Party donors who I think would like her gone as soon as possible. It's someone who's just a little bit towards the left, and I don't mean hugely, I mean someone who can at least carry some favour in those metropolitan needs while, as you were saying, Miranda, still speaking to the Brexit parts of the country because you've got to try and get somewhere in between both of those. And this is where someone like Sajid Javid does become interesting. And there was an interesting column this week by Fraser Nelson, The Telegraph, who explains why Sajid is the natural leader in waiting now. And his argument is that he's a reformer and that he's someone who will come in and change things and someone who can try and speak to both those camps. Not everyone agrees with that, but that's the kind of leader I think they've got to look towards.
2: Well, you're very right to turn the discussion to personalities because none of it makes any sense at all unless you've actually got the right kind of human vehicle for your campaign. As Robert
1: said about Theresa May. Yeah
2: exactly who you know to hear Ruth Davidson use the word joyless this week when it's so obviously (laughs) referred to her party leader in Downing Street was quite something when as we've said May was the one who all those years ago warned the Tory party about becoming sort of repulsive and nasty. So you have got a huge personality problem and actually that sort of centre ground of moderate labour also has a huge personality absence in terms of who they could get to lead a resurgence there on the moderate centre-left. So really we're all sort of having this conversation about the same thing which is who is our British Macron and will we ever get one and when our Macron emerges will it be a centre-right Macron or a centre-left Macron because they're sort of after the same project and it has to be some sort of disruptor I think after everything that's happened in the last two years we need somebody who can at least pretend, as Macron has done, to be new and fresh, even if they are from the establishment. Uh, I
3: mean, it's interesting. We've spent almost all this conversation talking about the Conservative Party. But actually, there is a real conversation to be had about Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. You know, again, I meet a lot of Conservatives who say, oh, we've, we've hit Pete Corbyn, he's hit his ceiling, we can get him now, boundary changes to come maybe, we can do this. And actually, I look at this and think, I see absolutely no reason to assume that's true at all. The Labour Party leadership has hired some very smart people you saw in the general election, you've seen since. They are strategically pretty clever. They are making offers to key groups of voters. They are relentless in offering to spend more money, which is always attractive to voters. And I think the assumption that the public will wear out and will get bored with Corbyn is flawed. It doesn't mean he's going to win. But I think to just assume he's done now, he's peaked, is extremely dangerous because you sense a very clear appetite for change in the country, not least around things like the settlement for the employed, the sense that people with jobs or in the gig economy don't have enough security. So just on the flip
1: side of that, I think... One argument you can say about Pete Corbyn is that if Mr. Corbyn stood still for the next couple of years and put pretty much the same electoral offer in 2017 and 2022, I think you would be entirely right. But they are getting more radical in things they're putting forward. Their rhetoric and language is getting more radical. You know, John McDonnell said this week, it's my job to overthrow capitalism, Mm. for example. If they keep doing that over the next few years and they stop doing that you know, strategy of picking off part of the electorate. I do think that does create issues. And I think one thing the local elections did show is that momentum had developed this mystique in Westminster as being this unbeatable campaigning force that was going to change the face of elections. The local elections still showed to me that the air war
3: and the overall party image still matters. I mean, the local elections four weeks before the general election showed that too. People may just be less excited about Labour councils than they are about Jeremy Corbyn. And to be clear, I'm not saying... It's absolutely done. He's going to win. There are all kinds of things that can go wrong. But I think there is an air of complacency creeping into some conservative thinking, which I think is very foolish. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Miranda?
2: I do. And I also think that the kind of bizarre alchemy that goes on in a general election campaign, where people just have to be convinced that you're sort of on the same side and it's okay to be on the same side as this person, actually... It's absolutely true that the Corbyn Manifesto was popular in its individual policies last time, but it also just gave people this idea that they wanted to belong to this inverted commas movement. For the Tories to pull that off, wow, that's tricky.
1: Yeah, and I think now ultimately comes to this final point that the Conservatives have got an image problem and I think that is the thing that they've got to tackle the most and it's both ideas and personality in my view that you know they could have Ruth Davidson, she could find her way to Westminster as soon as possible and then line herself to succeed Mrs May. But ultimately, if you don't address those points you just raised, Robert, about the settlement for employment, for the health service, for public services, then people will just increasingly
3: see that they're out of touch. Yeah, I mean, they do have image problems. They don't seem particularly likeable. That hasn't always been a problem for them in the past. The Ruth Davidson plan, by the way, I see a number of holes in it. I think it's very difficult for her to fight an English seat before the general election. I Uh, I think it would damage her own integrity in the sense of honesty about her. They are counting on boundary changes that would give her a safe Edinburgh seat. So anything's possible. But... Actually, it's competence, it's efficiency, it's looking like you're getting the job done. And the last point I'd make, by the way, is that the public hasn't tired of Theresa May. You know, she's ahead of Corbyn in the polls and actually they like her a lot more than they like any of the alternatives so far.
2: I have to say, I think that's true. And I'm amazed sometimes by the school gate conversations about Mrs May, particularly from women, actually, who say, well, isn't she brave to carry on and she's just trying to get the job done? So, you know, there may be a lot of that, but I don't think, I mean, we've been caught out so much in the last few years thinking that people are continuing to vote on an assumption that the competent party of government is always going to be the Conservative Party. And we could be caught out again by assuming that.
1: And of course, on that, you can't dismiss Brexit from that whole thing well, I exactly. think it really are, hinges exa- on.
2: Exactly. You're quite right. They can't escape from it. And as Robert's already said, they will be responsible for whatever messy outcome we get.
1: We've had some stark warnings on Brexit this week. First off, it was Jacob rees mogg the archer sceptic, warning that any more backsliding by Theresa May would mean trouble for the Prime Minister's position. Then it was Ivan Rogers, David Cameron's former Europe advisor, who attacked muddled headed thinking by both Remainers and Leavers and called us to reopen some Brexit options. And then Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, warned of the danger to the economy of a messy exit. And for good measure, we discovered from HMRC that the government's Max Fact Customs option could cost. £20 billion. Pounds. George Parker, as we were just saying before we started recording, it's been a week of lots of chatter, lots of scratching of heads, lots of huffing and puffing from your sceptics, but once again, nothing has actually happened, or nothing has changed, to coin a phrase.
4: <laughs> that may be true on the face of it, but I think the dynamics of the debate on Brexit have changed quite fundamentally. I think a turning point wasn't this week, but the week before, when the Cabinet got together and agreed what they saw as this Irish backstop option, which really is the hub of the whole thing. It sets the direction of the negotiations and basically accepting that Britain would remain aligned with the customs union, tied to the customs union into the next decade. Michael Gove might say it will last for weeks or months. Frankly, it's going to be a number of years in my view. So I think that set the tone of things and I think the dynamic of the debate has changed. I get the sense that the Tory Eurosceptics are on the back foot a bit. You've got that through some of the comments by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leading Eurosceptic this week and a sense that the call for a soft Brexit is advancing. And actually, one of the ways you can tell how the debate's going is by who's not making a fuss at any given point. And the pro-Europeans have gone very quiet at the moment. The Chancellor, Phil Hammond, barely mentioned Brexit in his big speech to the CBI this week. So I think it's heading in that direction. But then, of course... We're talking about the British end of the debate, which sometimes seems to be operating in complete parallel to what people are talking about in Brussels. And as a corrective to everything that's happened at Westminster this week, at the end of the week, an unnamed EU official, I'm afraid talking on the basis of anonymity, said that the whole British debate was being conducted in an era of fantasy.
1: Well, we've heard that before over many years about how Britain looks towards Europe, but Henry Newman, on the point George was making about who is making a fuss at the moment, that does seem to be quite striking because this backstop that George was mentioning, essentially, if that becomes government policy, which some people like Nick Bowes believe that it essentially should be, that would be a massive softening down of Brexit. But the cabinet still hasn't agreed on what its preferred option is, the backstop, as the name hints, is the backstop. So at some point, they're going to have to decide between the max fat Customs all the new customers partnership. What's your sense on which way that debate is going given what we've heard this week?
5: So I think there was a apt uh, metaphor used by the editor of Conservative Home about boiling frogs and this idea that the temperature was slowly being turned up in the pan and the Brexiteers were not realising quite how hot it was getting around them. I think that's fair to a point, but I don't think actually the government has necessarily conceded quite as much as some people are suggesting on the backstop. The backstop is essentially saying that in the event of a no-deal scenario, or in any event other than in a negotiated deal, the UK will commit to keeping things across the Irish border in alignment with with the rules of the single market and customs union, as far as they relate to the Good Friday Agreement, the all-Ireland economy, and North-South cooperation. So it's clearly saying not all the rules of the single market and the customs union. Now, the EU's approach was this was to apply solely to Northern Ireland. And it was up to the UK, where they therefore put the border, obviously down the Irish Sea. The UK turned around and said, no, that wasn't acceptable. And what we saw last week was the cabinet really, I think, calling the EU's bluff to a degree and saying, well, we'll apply all of this to the whole of the UK. And I think it's far from certain that the EU would accept this. When I put this to senior commission officials, they say that would be unacceptable. Now, they admit that having a backstop just for Northern Ireland is an example of cherry-picking, but they don't want to see that cherry-picking, i.e. essentially a goods-only single market for the whole of the UK without free movement. One thing that I have been struck with this week is
1: obviously are we going to get a pragmatic Brexit deal or is it going to be based on punishing Britain or what have you? And the whole debate about Galileo, George, has really come into it this week, whereas I think people on the British side see Galileo as a pragmatic example of a new security and defence partnership where Brexit Britain and Europe work together. The EU, on the other hand, said, well, if you're in, you can participate, and if you're out, you can't participate. And in a way, it's actually united Remainers and Leavers in Britain, this topic of whether the UK is going to be involved in probes, put into space... By the EU Commission or whether for some bizarre reason starts to make its own navigation system.
4: Well that's the uh, threat the Brits have issued that we'll go it alone maybe with the Australians on the satellites. So I, I have some sympathy with people who say that Britain should be able to participate in Galileo. There should be a practical way through this. I think the problem is that people on the British side of the channel think the EU is being excessively legalistic and saying you can't take part in whether it's Galileo or the European arrest warrant. A load of things which seem to make common sense because we're not part of the legal structures of the EU. And we think they're being unreasonable. It's become a theology for the Europeans. The Europeans see it totally differently. They say we're 28 member states. We don't implicitly trust each other. We trust each other because we have a legal framework where remedies can be sought in a court which has a jurisdiction across the whole European Union. Now, if you're outside, we might trust you, Brits, but maybe we don't. And there's no remedy if something goes wrong. And that's the problem with Galileo, and it runs right across the board, whether it's police and judicial cooperation, or as Henry was just talking about there, the single market as well, that if you're outside, you are on the outside. And Galileo is, I suppose, the most graphic illustration of that.
1: This feeds into what Ivan Rogers said this week. He delivered a 11,000-word lecture in Scotland where he was essentially attacking positions put forward by all sides, actually. And his key argument was that the Norway options and the Swiss options for Brexit were ruled out too quickly, in his view, and essentially said that Again, like the European Commission, there's too many people in
4: Britain who are thinking inside a bubble. Do you think that's fair? Yes, I do. I think a lot of what Ivan Rogers was saying when he was the British ambassador to Brussels, shortly before he was sacked, were borne out by the facts, actually, that he saw around the corners. And his lecture was actually made very dispiriting reading. And uh, it was only towards the very end of the lecture you got to a point where Ivan Rogers advanced a possible answer to some of the questions. He concluded that maybe one way out of this would be to have Britain as tied to a customs union with the EU. And then have a single market in industrial goods. He admitted that would imply contributions to the European budget and some ECJ oversight. But he said on that basis, it might be possible to get a carve out on the free movement of people, which ultimately, if we don't have control over free movement of people, then Brexit really will have gone down the pan.
5: And that, of course, is broadly what the Ukraine is also offered. So I think one of the things that we're doing at Open Europe is looking at the different available options that the EU already has in its existing precedents of different arrangements and trying to come up with a suitable framework for the UK. I thought Ivan's speech was unsurprisingly cogent and perceptive, but I think what it did do quite importantly was really take pops at both extreme Brexiteers and extreme Remainers for their delusions around these issues. And whether or not it might have been possible if... There's a lot of kind of shoulda, woulda, coulda going on at the moment. Well, Prime Minister shouldn't have triggered Article 50 when she did and so on. Well, fine. But to use the famous Whitehall phrase, we are where we are. And most importantly, the Conservatives didn't quite lose but almost lost the election last year and that makes the parliamentary mass very, very difficult and compromise is just going to be required. So Brexiteers won't get everything they want and neither will Remainers. But I think on the security side, I do think the EU is being very unreasonable here. I think it's possible to differentiate between what's happening in economics and trade where there's obviously a rules-based framework overseen by the European Court. I do think it's different on security because when Theresa May back at Lancaster House over a year ago said, well, our security cooperation is not... Unconditional. Everybody went absolutely crazy. And now she's saying it is conditional. They're taking it for granted. And they're saying, well, you have to put in all you can offer us an unconditional security and defence guarantee. But by the way, you can't even use Galileo properly until we work out on what terms we're going to be working in the future. That I think is unacceptable. And I think it's quite possible for the EU to separate security and economics and trade
1: to come back to a point you made out I think really gets the thrust of all this is that in a way some Conservative Brexiteers haven't accepted what happened this time last year when Theresa May went to the polls put her vision of Brexit to the country and the country sort of didn't really give it a thumbs up or thumbs down in a way it was a stalemate result and the parliamentary arithmetic for this whole thing is so fragile and the government can't really get away from that so those people like Mr Rees-Mogg who really want to go for a clean break and would very happily see a no deal, they don't accept
5: where the numbers are for that? I will be careful of over overreading Brexit into the 2017 election but I think that the basic fact is for whatever reason people voted we ended up with a hung parliament and there is no clear majority and that makes various things much harder makes no deal harder but also makes a no deal scenario where we could become inverted commas like Switzerland also much harder and the EU of course knows that so that means that compromise is necessary. I don't think that clever Brexiteers like Jacob they must recognise that there is a necessity to compromise but I think they also are afraid of giving an inch and having a mile taken. And that, of course, is true on the Remain side as well. And that, unfortunately, is leading to this paralysed stalemate that no side wants to move towards what is obviously going to be a compromised landing zone in the centre for fear that they end up being pushed over in whichever way the Prime Minister ends up moving.
4: I think the landing zone will end up being much closer to the soft Brexiteers than the hard Brexiteers simply because of the parliamentary arithmetic that Henry's just been describing there. Let's say the hard Brexiteers number about 60 and you could probably get them to 120 or 130 if you add on the more moderate levers. And that's out of 650. The parliamentary arithmetic dictates that Theresa May will end up with a softer kind of Brexit. And speaking to some people on the Conservative right, I start to think that they're actually starting to look a bit beyond Brexit Day on March 29th, 2019, that they think the important thing now is to grit our teeth if necessary, get this project over the line, get Britain out of the EU. And well, then after that, we can start talking about the future relationship, which, of course, will be negotiated after we leave. And they see it as a bit of a longer term project that if the EU and the UK still remain tied together in some shape or form, they can then unpick those ties further down the track.
1: I think yeah. that sounds a lot like a Boris Johnson leadership campaign
5: pitch there. I think the the fact is, I'm not going to get involved in those questions, but um, I think the biggest danger emerging now, this also should be a concern for the EU side, and I've raised it repeatedly with diplomats in the UK and from EU member states and also with the Commission, is that I think there's a strong chance the deal ends up not being sustainable in the long term for the UK. I don't know exactly what George would define as hard and soft Brexit. I think those terms are slightly less useful than than others. But I still think the UK should end up leaving the single market and leaving the customs union. And the government is determined to bring those bills back to the commons, we understand, shortly and face down those rebels and face down the amendments in the House of Lords. But I suspect that they may end up being closer in certain regulatory terms than we thought maybe a year and a half ago. But I think the other point is that the European Union is itself also changing. And we may find in two or three years time that it looks like quite a different organisation. Obviously, we have an extraordinary situation unfolding in Italy with a man raised to the office of Prime Minister who exaggerated certain elements of his CV and other big changes happening. It's completely unclear what happens with Macron's vision for Eurozone reform, which is strongly resisted in the East and so on. So two, three years, four years down the line, I think things could look very, very different. And exactly as George was saying, I think some people recognise that this is a longer game. And of course, if you look at Nicola Sturgeon's big piece on Scottish independence, she was talking about, I think, a 10-year transition out of the pound sterling into an independent currency. Now, whether or not we believe that, I think the fact is many people are willing to recognise that Brexit is a complex process and not a single event and might take a few years. There is a big sense I got this week from the Conservative Party, George, of just trying to
1: get any deal now and just get over the line that, you know, obviously, Theresa May's mantra that no deal is better than a bad deal seems to have well and truly died. The, you know, the preparations for no deal are simply just not there within Whitehall. But there is a danger in a way that in that sort of desperation just to get a deal and to have a smoother exit possible, which is what uh, Mark Carney warned about the impact of this week, that a lot is sucked up because I think Henry's completely right that the Conservative Party would rather have these debates once it's outside the EU. But once you're outside, you're a
4: third country and it's a very different negotiating landscape. Yes, I think that's true. But don't forget, we are in a weak position because of the way these negotiations are structured. The only thing that has to be put into a legal treaty before we leave is the withdrawal agreement. And that includes the Irish border question and the backstop. The rest of it the future relationship is only the subject of a political declaration. And the fact is that is going to be nailed down in detailed talks after we leave. We will be a third country. We will be in a weaker position. Another cliff edge will be approaching, which is the end of the transition period in December 2020. And I'm afraid we don't have very many levers. One of the levers the Eurosceptics thought we had, which is the idea that we might be able to withhold some of the £39 billion of the divorce payment if we didn't get a satisfactory trade deal. Well, The Brexit Minister, Suella Braverman, this week was saying, and admitting, I think really for the first time, that we'd have to hand over the money before we even start those talks.
1: And then finally, this point that, again, we've said that the EU withdrawal bill, this crucial piece of legislation, is going to come back to the House of Commons in June. There was some murmurings the government might wait until the autumn to do that, which would be a very high-risk strategy, given how complex and how many amendments there are to overturn. You know, it's close to a dozen, I think, that were put on by the House of Lords. That MPs need to be whipped, and Conservatives were told this week that all your levers can, so don't even think about trying to rebel or do anything silly on on this but around the 11th of June we're going to have some real parliamentary fun and games as they try and get that bill through George
4: Yeah I mean there are 15 amendments to this bill and the government has to decide which ones it wants to overturn I suspect it will let some of them go through Um, there's an amendment down on the customs union which potentially is a very tricky one And I wonder whether the government might let that one stand because they argue it doesn't actually commit the government to taking Britain into a customs union so they can hide behind the parliamentary drafting on that. But I think there are one or two that they will have to try and overturn, including the one on the meaningful vote, the idea that Parliament will be able to stop a no deal Brexit. I think that's one they'll have to overturn. And as you say, it's going to be a very exciting day of parliamentary ping pong, bills batting
5: back and forth between the two chambers. One of the extraordinary things, I think, is the extent to which debate for the last few months really has been dominated by this question of the customs union, which really is not a particular policy solution to anything. We have to leave the customs union, as Ivan Rogers made clear, we could form a customs union. But if you look at the slides put out by the European Commission this week, being in a new customs union would not solve the vast majority of problems at the Irish or the Anglo-French or Anglo-Belgian border. This is a much bigger question. So sometimes it seems that the debates within the Commons and indeed the Lords are totally out of kilter with Uh, Reality and the way the negotiations are going in the continent.
1: Who could believe that? Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Robert, George, Miranda and Henry for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening.